The gift is a honeybee. Sometimes the gift is a dragonfly or a hummingbird. And if you don't open your eyes, you don't pay attention to their messages coming to you all day. The world is trying to talk to you. Bienvenue and welcome to Cirque du Sound, a sonic trip. Brought to you by Cirque du Soleil, where we redefine the boundaries of creativity with some of today's most forward thinkers, makers, doers, and creators. My name is Michel Laprise. I'm the creative guide and the lucky director of a few Cirque du Soleil shows, and I'm your host of the show today. At Cirque du Soleil, our special skill is recognizing good creative ideas in people in other disguises. We know that creativity can come from anywhere and from anyone. Our shows are inspired by those places where the creative arts intersect with other disciplines. Right now, in the background, you're hearing the beautiful music of Lucia, composed by Simon Carpentier. Lucia is a wonderful Cirque du Soleil show written and directed by Daniele Finzi Pasqua. The show's set design, costumes, performances, and music are all inspired by the culture, the history, and the mythology of Mexico. Lucia's name is a fusion of the sounds of luz, light in Spanish, and lluvia, rain, the two elements at the core of the show's creation. From the 5,000 Mexican marigolds that fill the stage at the beginning of Lucia to the giant disc representing the Aztec calendar that makes the centerpiece for the stage backdrop, the themes derived from Mexican culture and traditions are obvious and much like most of our Cirque du Soleil shows, Lucia takes these real-world inspirations and transports viewers to another world. We call these places sometimes story worlds. These story worlds are much like dreams, where it becomes increasingly more difficult to distinguish between the dream and reality. You wake up parachuting into a field of flowers filled with butterflies and running horses where weeping women sing and trapeze artists dance 10 stories above the ground while the sun shines to the torrential pouring rain. At Cirque du Soleil, we live for those moments of disbelief, wonder, and capturing imaginations. So, what lies at the border between doubt and wonder, between belief and disbelief? In a world defined by unseen forces, some that pull us apart and some that hold us together, it seems that the concept or presence or existence of something untouchable, unexplainable, undefinable is almost undeniable. And one way of describing that thing, that glue, that je ne sais quoi, is magic. Today, we're going to try and define the undefinable. What is a story world? And what is that piece that bridges reality with fantasy 
that binds the mundane with the mystical in that liminal space. What is that magic? Where does it come from? How do we get there? Today, I'm excited to introduce a guest who is as much of a magic seeker as any of us here at Cirque du Soleil, if not more. He spent his life telling stories that explore the realms between dreams and reality, researching the mysteries behind miracles and following the true stories of others from our world to the next. Luis Alberto Urrea is here to help us try and understand the story worlds of magical realism. Hailed by NPR as literary badass and a master storyteller with a rock and roll heart, Luis Alberto Urrea is a prolific and acclaimed writer who uses his dual cultural life experiences to explore greater themes of love, lust, and triumph. He was born in Tijuana, Mexico, to a Mexican father and an American mother. Growing up in the U.S., he spent time working as a modern missionary in Tijuana. He later taught writing and fiction at Harvard University and is now a distinguished professor of creative writing at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He has published in nearly every genre. He's written nonfiction, memoir, short stories and poetry. He's written historical novels and even as an award-winning mystery story. He was a 2005 Pulitzer finalist for nonfiction for his book, The Devil's Highway, an account of a group of Mexican immigrants lost in the Arizona desert. He's a member of the Latino Literature Hall of Fame and a critically acclaimed and best-selling author of 17 books. Luis Alberto Urea, welcome to Cirque du Sound. Thank you, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here talking to you. It's, it's an honor for us. Can you please describe who you are? Because, you know, I've, I've stated a few things, but I like to ask people in their own words who, who they are, how they define themselves, and where they come from. And then, if you please, define what magical realism or real magicalism, what does it mean to you? Oh, wow. Well, uh, yes, I was born in Tijuana. I come from a dirt street in Tijuana, hmm. uh, in a barrio called Colonia Independencia, the colony of independence. So I think that sounded a certain thread for me, you know, the, the, the hmm. ring of that thought of independence. And magic was everywhere, everywhere hmm. in my family, permeating our existence. My family were not religious but they weren't Catholics, but they, uh, they were completely soaked in the possibility of the strangeness of this world. And for example, and this would sound like a fictional trope, but it's not, the, the, the dirt street outside my grandmother's house went down a hill toward Tijuana itself. And there was a dirt cliff along the side of that. And at the top of the cliff, some crazy Mexican, nobody knew who it was, built a castle, a European-style oh. castle with battlements, you know, where his archers could shoot arrows or something. Yeah. And so one of my first experiences of storytelling was a mix of my family making up amazing tales about the Urrea clan and 
explanations of who the mysterious king was on top of our hill. You, wow. you know, it's a Garcia Marquez story. Yeah, yeah. And my, what do I do? I write. But writing is a, a, such a, an all-consuming thing. And I first texted with Cirque, and I was so excited because I've always, when I've gone to see your shows, thought you're doing exactly what we're trying to do with words, and you're, you're making mm-hmm. it physical. That has been, that has been my, my duty for a very long time, partially because, you know, well, first of all, Mexico wasn't magical to me. I knew it. My mom mm. from New York City, that was weird. That was magical realism because I had to imagine, what is that world of tall buildings and, and gringos like? That was magic. And so uh, I, I realized that I had been given a gift, and that was the war between my parents. My father wanted me to be Mexican. My mother wanted me to be an American boy. So he called me Luis, she called me Luis. And I was raised really? twice. Oh yes. She never learned Spanish. <laughs> yeah. So I was raised twice at the same time. So I feel a, a little schizophrenic, but I think all artists are. I think all artists have one foot in a very sacred, mysterious, I don't mean religious, sacred world of imagery and revelations. And then one in the practical. And they traded off. My mother combated all the Mexican magic with Mark Twain, <laughs> American books. And that was yeah. also a ritual, you know, it was a ritual. And when you ask about magical realism, I think there's an interesting thing. If you look at it back in Spanish rather than the translation, we call it, you know, uh, magical realism. In Spanish, it's realismo mágico, realism magic as a combination because I think part yeah. of the message that's lost in translation is that our lives are full of mystery. Our lives themselves are magical. It's not that oh we're God. taking magic and making it realistic. That's fantasy or science fiction writing. This is something more profound. And uh, I think about a quote from Octavio Paz, Mexico's mm-hmm. great poet, who said, the bones are lightning in the body's night. We are the night. Life itself is the lightning. Mm. I don't know if that it's, answers it's, your you, question. You, 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 now you're preaching to the choir because I, I, I'm a strong believer that really, the real realism at the core is magical. Oh, yeah. It says that we, we, we just need to look at it with the real eyes. And it's like, uh, it's half that. I mean, they can take an oh, object. Yes and find the magic of it. And it is there. It's completely, completely there. I see you preaching to the choir because uh, I was listening to you and, and I'm thinking of Michel Tremblay is an author in Quebec and was raised in a humble district. But he was doing Realisme Magique without knowing it. My question is, do you think there is a link between the humbleness of your upbringing and this consciousness of the magical? Oh, yeah, I, I think things resonate and they do take on, I, I don't even want to say magical or mystical. They take on a ritualistic mm-hmm. gleam, ah. simple things. And one of my tasks as a workshop leader is to break through all of the barriers that keep you from 
the enchantment of the daily life. And I don't mean enchantment like mm-hmm. fairies. You know that some of it mm-hmm. is, is terrible. Embrace the dark as well. But one of the first things when I was working on Hummingbird's Daughter, it took me 25 years to, to learn the things in that book. But one of the first things that the medicine women, there were mostly women, but some men as well, who helped me try to learn this stuff, they told me, you're making a mistake. You celebrate your birthday once a year. Every day is your birthday, Luis. Every minute is your birthday. And you're being sent gifts all day, every day of your life. And you're blind to them because you're thinking about a car. You're thinking about a big screen television or a lot of money. And sometimes the gift is a honeybee. Sometimes the gift is a dragonfly or a hummingbird. And if you don't open your eye, if you don't pay attention that there are messages coming to you all day, the world is trying to talk to you, but you've gone deaf and blind by all the all the walls of things that we have around us. So I start with that. And, uh, you know, my first assignment is usually, first I have to convince them of this. And I tell them, just, just humor me. We're only going to be together a small while, so just make me happy. And I tell them about this, and then I tell them, so go celebrate your birthday and bring me back notes on what you've seen, because the world will show you things. doesn't matter how small it is. And, you know, once they've agreed to that possibility, then we can begin to dance. You know, we can begin wow. to fly like Cirque does. Mm. Wow. You bring tears to my ears. <laughs> um, hmm. No, it's true. We live in a paradise and we, we forgot about it. That's why we're killing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we, we People have a hard time to, to deal with beauty and happiness. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So where do you start when you embark on a journey of you know trying mm-hmm. to decipher the wonders of the spiritual or magical or mystical world and translating that into words? You spoke about that. The, the white page, but how, you, how do you do that? And is do you have your own ritual? Do you have uh, different ways, a different time of the day where you write? I think things haunt you, and sometimes they're like little little splinters you can't get out, and you get used to the splinter. But then you realize one day somebody or something is nudging you. It may be your own subconscious saying, "Hey, pay mm. attention to this. Pay attention to this." And I, I, for the longest time, have dedicated many of my energies to representing people who are made invisible by the dominant culture or by mm. money or, you know. I, I've, I talk about this a lot because I often, not so much now, but earlier, spent a lot of time at juvenile detention centers that were full of my youth. You know, little mm. Latino, Latina kids who are mm. in trouble. I did prison work in Mexico, which was really touching too. But, so, you know, at the very beginning of all this, I think, is the, the question of service. And I think, I think you too, as fancy as we can get, and, you know, we have fans and people pay us and all that, but we're serving, I mm. think, ah. serving the people that we come in contact with. So, I have to make those hardened, gangbanger, tough kids or heartbroken kids who have a veneer because they're broken. 
I know where they're from. And so I have mm. to break through. And I've learned that the most sacred things are sometimes the most quotidian details that we ignored. And they are ways that our elders have tried to pass things on to us. Story, sound, culture, habit. And we ignore it because they're old. And often with those kids, I say, how many times did your grandmother repeat the same story until you stopped listening and wish she'd stopped telling you that and now she's dead and you're asking yourself, what was that thing she was trying to tell me? Mm. This is this is the human condition, wow. I think, that there we're you know, we're being given that. So uh I I you'll you'll recognize this because I think part of this ritual is the physicality of it. One of our mistakes is we sit at a desk and write all day long. The reality is we're here, we're living, we're movement, we're bodies as well. So I tell those kids, um, how many of you like tortillas? And they laugh, tortillas. I say, yeah, tortillas. How many of you were raised eating tortillas? And they kind of timidly put their hands up. And I say, do you know this sound? And they're like, now they don't because tortillas are made by machines. Yeah. I say, this was what I grew up with. This is my backbeat. I've got a 4-4 backbeat. No wonder I like rock and roll music. From a room full of indigenous women in Tijuana who made these by hand. And they, my first job in my family was to take a little money and they'd say, Luisito, go get tortillas. So I had a responsibility. I had a story. I had dinero. And I walked up the hill. And to me, this is a literary moment. You leave the house you walk up the dirt hill, and as you get closer and closer, you start hearing the hands. And a little closer, and you start smelling the maíz. And then you wow. step in a room with six women. And they're looking at you, and you're looking at them. And it was much more romantic for me, because I thought, oh, I'm going to marry you. I was six yes. years old, but I'm going to marry all of you. Oh, yes. And they'd start feeding so beautiful. They'd be like, ay, güerito, little blonde boy. You want a tortilla? Si, por favor. They'd roll one up with butter. Oh, wow. So we had this communion in there. And when it was done, you'll appreciate this too. I think this is something sick does. Holding the hot tortillas against my stomach, walking back down the hill, leaving the scent, then leaving the sound, and entering the sound of my family. That If that's not literature and ritual... I don't know what is. So I have been I have been peeled open and it's uncomfortable, but I've been peeled open to see ritual in everything we do. And when I don't see it, I realize that I've I'm becoming scabbed over again. What does it mean scabbed over? Uh you know uh uh tiene cicatriz, you know you you're you're closing off. <sighs> You're 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 growing you're By growing protection. a yeah ah, tough skin or numbness because it's very mm. hard to stay open and it's too much to ask to be you know some new age guru happy all day or you know that doesn't it's not true <laughs> but that that we need to be aware and I wanted to I wanted to tell you this my my discoverer was a writer named Ursula Le Guin Ursula K Le Guin she was 
the greatest, I think, science fiction and fantasy writer, but a, a, a brilliant, brilliant woman. And she took me under her wing when I was in college and began teaching me how to be a writer. The actual process, she was wow. a Taoist. She followed the Tao. And she was an anthropologist as well as a science fiction writer. Like this woman was open to so many things. But she told me, and I tell this to all of my students, she said, we writers are the raw nerve of the universe because the people in this world have forgotten how to feel. So we go out in the world and experience things and then come back and write a scripture to them, reminding them what it's like to be human, how to feel things. And she said, we no longer have a tribal system. We no longer have a fire in the morning where our elders tell us. We don't listen to our abuelitas, you know, know. to explain what the dream meant. We, t- we tell them what it's like to be human. Absolutely. You've said that you spent 25 years researching your book, The Hummingbird's Daughter, which is about your great-great-aunt Teresa, known as the Mexican Joan of Arc, a Mexican mystic folk healer and a yes. revolutionary insurgent. Can you give our listeners a brief synopsis of the book and tell us about the process of doing your research? Yes. There are two books. The Hummingbird's Daughter and Queen of America. And they they take her journey from birth to whatever's on the other side of death. She died at the age of 33. So she became an obsession in Mexico that she was a, a female Christ character. She died when she was younger and resurrected in front of everybody and then died at 33. So, you know... She's not known as the daughter of God in some areas. I didn't know about her. Of course, people had forgotten her story. And I was in Tijuana. We, you know, I left Tijuana early, was dying of tuberculosis. One of the things everyone told me, don't ever tell people because it's shameful. And I thought, I'm going to tell everybody. Yeah, because why is there shame? I didn't do anything. I just got sick, you know. But I would go back almost every week. And I had an aunt. Tell me if this isn't a Garcia Marquez character. My aunt Leti, they called her Tia Flaca, the skinny aunt, right? She was blind in one eye, diabetic, wore those 50s, 60s pointy eyeglasses, and she chain smoked. And the smoke was always on this side, the side of her blind eye. So the smoke looked like it was coming out of her eye. And she told stories Ah. all day. All day, these crazy stories. Wow. And in the midst of all that, thinking, oh, you know, she's such a liar. She says to me, Luisito, tenías una tía. You had an aunt. And uh, she could heal the sick. And I was like, what? She could heal the sick, mijo. Touch of her hand, heal the sick. And she was a Yaqui Indian. And I thought... Every kid, you know, wanted indigenous. You know, I have an aunt who's a Yaqui Indian. Wow. And my family spoke words of Yaqui. I didn't know what they were. Instead oh, wow. of perro or gato, they would say michuma, pichupa. Instead of, you know, n- naked, which would be desnudo or encuerado, they said bichi. Those were cajita words, bichi. Their worst in that tribe, the worst insult was yoribichi, which means naked white man. Yodi is white man. So I thought, where do those words come from? And I realized, because you intuit, 
even as a kid, you think, oh, they come from the connection to Teresita. And as years went by, there were more stories about her that, you know, not only could she heal the sick, but she could raise the dead. One touch of her hand, a dead man would get up. And right about probably when I was entering puberty and getting dubious about things, you know, like, uh, I don't know if I believe what the old timers are telling me. She started telling me that your aunt, your aunt could also fly. And that was too much. I said, no, that's it. Yeah. Mentiras, you know, forget it. I was rational. I was going to go to college and I listened to the doors. Led Zeppelin, no time for, for magic. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, after Le Guin, after I graduated college, I, I had a job at a community college uh, in a Chicano studies department, helping Spanish speakers try to speak English. And my boss was a Jesuit, interestingly enough. And he said, Urea, you're related to the saint. And I said, what saint? And he said, the saint of Cabora, Teresita. And I said, oh, no, that's just a family legend. And he pulled out a textbook and showed me a chapter about her. So all that to say that that journey now, in retrospect, I think is what we go through as artists finding the path to a story, you know, to a movement that you, 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 you may choreograph some movement of somebody above my head spinning in, this, in the air that's been cooking for decades somehow inside you, that you know, that's what I'm trying to do, to try to show the reality of their life and to show that our mistake is constantly trying to make everything mystic in a fake, you know, a biblical movie way, whereas their lives were funky like our lives. It's that concept of every minute is your birthday. Story, you know, inspiration, what we call inspiration, messages, dreams, accidents, hilarity, they come endlessly. But there was so much to tell, not only about her, but about the medicine life and about the family history, because she was in Urrea after all, and about Mexico and about, you know, the, the depredations of the Diaz regime against the indigenous and the poor. That's a big, it was big work. So it took too much time. If I had known it was going to take 25 years. I wouldn't have done it. I would have done something else. But I'm glad I did. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to Cirque du Sound, a brand new podcast from Cirque du Soleil looking at the interdisciplinary roots of creativity. My name is Michel Laprise. Today, we're focusing on trying to define the undefinable. What is that magic that bridges dreams and reality? Where does it come from? Where do we find it? How do we get there? We're discussing with Luis Alberto Urrea about magical realism, story worlds, and the frontier between what we think we know and what we believe. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for Club Sick today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales, and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists, and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. 
is, we've talked about your background and some of the magical moments you've arrived at through your writing. I have another question for you. You've been described as a border writer, but you've also contested that by saying that you're more into bridges than borders. What does liminal space mean to you? And what lies in that in between? Oh, I love this liminal space. <laughs> Again, there, there's a great poet I love named Jane Hirschfield, one of my heroes. And she writes beautifully about liminal space, that creative people are in liminal space. We are, mm -hmm. we are at a portal. We're always stepping through a portal, through a gate. And then you find another gate and you step through that. I think it's a process. And liminal space also mm. makes room for imagery, what I call the understory, that every move you make has a shadow move attached to it. Every, every bit of imagery you write has deeper imagery underneath it. When I'm trying to indoctrinate my young writers, I use a, an image that Ernest Hemingway used. He said that an iceberg owes its dignity of motion to the 80% of it which is invisible under the water. And I thought, wait a minute. So I started calling it understory. And it's so true. And when I talk to the students, sometimes I draw it on a board and I tell them, if you don't believe in the power of the understory, go ask the Titanic. Because they saw the pretty <laughs> iceberg. But the shadow yeah. beneath it took the boat out. And now I draw a triangle on the board and I make the line across the top 20%. And I say, this little triangle up here, this is what you show the world. Beneath the line is what they don't know about you. And I say, because it's a triangle, let's put two diagonals at the bottom. Now there are two little triangles at the bottom. That's the shadow you'll never show anybody. Your deepest shame and your, your horror and all this. But look at all of this of you that you think they can't see. It shows up. And once you start working with that shadow life, you, you cross into liminal space. And Hirschfeld, just to make a little circle of this, she says that the, the Zen masters, the Buddhist monks, they were in liminal space. They, they yeah. tried to pass across the earth like the shadow of a cloud. And that's really beautiful to me. You would think that our work is so ego-driven and I want monuments, you know, you and I need to have great statues to us, but I don't think it's that way. I think it's, we know. Exact opposite. Ex right, exactly. I'm actually, I'm, to I'm embarrassed when I get attention. I, yes, I like it, sure, of course. I'm still seven years old somewhere inside of me. But I, I feel like I am trying so hard to surrender myself to a process that is beyond me, that I, in my awkward way, can be with you in what you're doing and with any artist I've ever loved. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a fellowship, kind of. And, and she said something that I love, Hirschfield quote. She said, this life is not the open gate, but the horse running through it. Wow. <laughs> so... That's, that's what I think about liminal space, about the, the, you know, opening that gate and then allowing life to, to speed through it. Mm -hmm. 
So true, my God. I'm digesting that beautiful quote. Wow. I'd like, I'd, I'd like to show you uh, an excerpt of a conversation with uh, Daniele Finzi Pasqua, the writer and director of Lucia. Nell'arte si decidió in una certa forma de non rappresentare necessariamente lo che uno veía e come le cose sono, ma le dare un'allusione che contiene pensamientos, reflexiones. E entonces se, se empieza a sugerir, a aludir. Il linguaggio dell'acrobazia è un linguaggio che permite esattamente l'exasperazione di queste idee perché tutto è surreal, non si necessita contare un algo che sia concreto o la reproduzione fidel de lo che viste. I just love the way Daniele speaks Spanish. Yes. <clears throat> the first words I thought, oh, my, he's speaking Italian. <laughs> no, he's speaking Spanish with the music. I'll translate what he just said. In the world of art, the decision was taken not to necessarily represent what we see and things the way they are, but to give an allusion containing thoughts, reflections. We start to suggest, to evoke. The language of acrobatics is a language that allows the exacerbation of those ideas because everything is surreal. We don't need to tell something concrete or the, the fateful reproduction of what we saw. When I was a little boy, I became obsessed with surrealism. And I didn't know why, except I realized later that it was a reflection of what the world seemed like to me. Because, you know, if you, if you just stopped and looked at this world we're in that we take for granted, tell me if there's anything more Salvador Dali than a rhinoceros. It's the weirdest thing ever seen, but we don't know. Yes. And then you'll appreciate this. When I got to college where there were sophisticated people, <laughs> my first, except for my parents, sophisticated people, they said, uh, ¿Te gusta surrealismo? And I said, yes, I like surrealism. They said, that's because your name is in it. You are surrealismo. And I said, <laughs> what? <laughs> what a call to arms. <laughs> And that's that's my that's my handle on uh, on on Twitter and stuff. Urealism, because I thought, yeah, darn right, man. Ah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Urealismo. Wow. Something that I learned from the the uh, shamans working on Hummingbird's Daughter. It never occurred to me, but over and over again, some version of came to me from people. And one old old woman in Cuernavaca told me essentially this is the this is the 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 signal fire that when you do the thing you're called to do either mm -hmm. from beyond or just from your own heart you do the, the the actual thing you make your art you light a signal fire in the darkness and all the lost souls mm -hmm. can begin to follow signal fire to signal fire until they get home because they're lost in nighttime. That moved me so much that it's probably one of the primary themes that keeps resonating for me all the time, that we have to put ourselves through sometimes the torment of the discipline. You know, it's not, you don't just start doing crazy things like what you people do, because first of all, they're not crazy. <laughs> They're disciplined. Or, mm -hmm. you know, sitting down to 12 hours of writing is not 
my number one idea of fun. But I think that all the things one does to facilitate the birth of that aesthetic moment is as close to a sacrament as we can get without veering into religion. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I once met, and you may appreciate this, I, I, I met uh, an ethnologist years ago, and she was fabulous, really interesting. But she told us, you don't understand how ancient all of the things you take for granted are. The roots of all the things mm. you're doing in this world now are very mm. ancient. They're pre-biblical ancient yeah. because there's a thing encoded in us as beings. And she said, yeah. if you go to the old Roman Catholic mass, the one I grew up with where you know, you'd hit your, your chest uh-huh. for being guilty of your sins and you'd up and down and all these movements— she said, we went and videotaped one of those masses and sped up the tape. And do you know what it is? It's a tribal dance. People enter, dip, get up, sit, stand, kneel, get up, hit their chest. She said, it looks like a Talking Heads video, you know, if you speed <laughs> it up. Yeah. I'd never, it, it seemed anathema to me. I thought, wow, that's, you know. You're a heretic, but I realized suddenly, oh, it's true. We're always reaching for something that's so profoundly, I think, human. We may seem inhuman to people who no longer have access to those things, but we give them access to them. Wow. So, so true. Before I let you go, Louis, if you could give any guidance to our listeners about how to find and nurture magic in their own lives, what would that be? Wow. <laughs> there are a couple of things. One of, the, one of the quotes that I get quoted all the time, and it's embarrassing now because I sound like a hippie, but it's true. I, uh, I told a group of writers, if you're going to write, fill your pen with love or don't bother picking it up. Mm. And that's become, you know, you see it on banners and things. It's really funny. But I, I, I think I'll, I'll share something that, one of my writer friends told me, and you might want to talk to her too someday, Linda Hogan. She's indigenous. She's a Chickasaw woman, a wonderful poet, wonderful novelist, finalist for the Pulitzer for one of her novels. But we were talking specifically about The Hummingbird's Daughter, which we've been discussing today. And I told her, I just don't know how to write this. And she shot down my every excuse. I said, I'm not indigenous. She said, do research I said, she's a woman. I'm not. She said, she's your woman. It's your responsibility. So I finally said, my Western mind cannot process this information. And she said to me, and I say it to you, honey, the Western mind is a fever. It will pass. She said, remember, remember what you knew when you were seven years old. Mm. <laughs> and that that became those are my marching orders i hear that all the time <laughs> it's funny because i said to the designers you have to put yourself if we're serious about this show you have to put yourself in the mind of a three years old yes when they look at when they look at clouds <laughs> and see what's in the clouds and a choreographer came to me in tears after she said remember when you spoke about reading the clouds and we've we don't do this. 
I realized that for the last 15 years, I stopped seeing. And all this time, uh. all the beautiful characters were in the clouds. And now, starting this process of creation, I can read the clouds again. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. I want to say a big, big thank you to you, Brother Luis Alberto Urrea. No, thank you, Michel. Surrealisme. Surrealisme. For joining us today. It's been such a wonderful conversation and we'll continue that if thank you, in, brother. Uh, next next season because uh, it's just the beginning. Okay. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Thank you. Much love. Much love. To the listeners, I want to thank you for your presence. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Cirque du Soleil's shows. Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. And remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Cirque du Sound. I am Michel Lapiste. À la prochaine. The Sound is produced by Cirque du Soleil with technical and story production by Jar Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, Please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 